studying together the book of Ecclesiastes and his tremendous subject, life under the sun with the sun. We have been studying in the last few weeks the second great message of this book which begins in chapter 3 and goes to the end of chapter 5. And that subject is God's sovereign control of life under the sun. As you look back through these three chapters, you can see that there are three words you can remember and will help you keep the contents in mind. In chapter 3, he points out the fact that God does control our lives under the sun. He does control. The second fact is that there are many things in life that seem to contradict the fact that God controls our lives. And the third thing he points out is cautions which you and I are to exercise as we live this life under the control of God. The first we pointed out already that God does control our lives. He appoints our times. He assigns our tasks. He accomplishes that which is beautiful in our lives. All things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And he assists us in the performing of that which will last forever. And then we also notice that there are contradictions that rise in life that seem to point out that God does not control. There is injustice. And so the Koheleth, the preacher, reminds us that God will judge. There is death. But the message of the preacher is that life that God gives us is now and we're to live it. In the end of his book, he points out that there is a life which follows on with God, but that the point that he is concerned about is the life which we now live under the sun, which is the gift of God. He points out the fact of oppression that is in the earth and reminds us that trials come into our lives that we might recognize that we have a real need for God. One of the basic rules of human living is rivalry, competition with others. And there are two classes of people, those that compete and those that cop out. When God points out there's a third alternative, that of receiving the task which he has assigned to us and resting in him to work out that which he has given us to perform that will last forever. Another very important area of life is relationships. And there are those who are lonely and those who are walking alone and those who sacrifice relationships as they seek to aggrandize their own their, their own things that they want, and they sacrifice people to do it. And the point, great point of the, the Koheleth is that we need to reach out 
to establish relationships with other people because that is a primary thing of importance in human life. And then he dealt with popularity. Oh, how much we think of the fact that, oh, if I were only popular, so-and-so is popular, but I'm not popular, therefore my, my life is not full. And he reminded us through the story of that king who lost his throne to another king, and then that new king gained the allegiance of the people, and oh, how they followed that new king. And that, but that new king discovered that he got old, and people soon left him for another. And popularity is a very fleeting basis for life upon the earth. Better far, better far is to recognize that great truth of God than that is that he is in control of life. None of these contradict that fact. And then we moved on in our study uh, to the fact of caution. And we saw last week the first part of this, that we are to be cautious as to how we are approach God. We are to watch our steps as we come into the presence of God. We are to watch our speech as we pray to God. And we are to watch what kind of promises we make to God. And then another caution that he gave was a caution as to how we respond to problems that come into our lives. We are not to be shocked. We are not to be shocked by the fact that problems come in our lives. Difficulties come our way. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But rather, he tells us that you and I need to rest in that tremendous and precious truth that is given to us in a parable form there in verse 9. If you look in, in chapter 5 and verse 9, you'll see it. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. And I reminded you that this is a proverb, and it is, it is the thing that is being emphasized is that God is in control of this earth. God is cultivating it. And we have the advantage of God's presence and God's work of cultivation on our lives. And we should not be shocked. We should not be thrown by the fact that problems come in and weeds grow and trials come into our lives. We have the presence of God with us. And then he moves on to another caution, which is the one we are to deal with today. And that is we are to be cautious how we relate to money. You know, if you look at what the preacher is presenting to us, you cannot help but see that he is dealing with those things, those ways in which men try to deal with God. Here is this great truth that he has presented. God is in control of life under the sun. Well, as we hear that and get to understand that, one of the ways in which we try to, to bring this thing into focus is to control God. 
That's right. God is in control, so we try to manipulate God. We try to manipulate God by the way we come into services and worship Him. And if we're real worshipful on Sunday, we expect some special help from God during the week. I've often mentioned that if I pray correctly on Sunday, I'll putt correctly on Thursday. It doesn't often work that way, and it shouldn't. But see, that's the idea we have today. And then another way is that we think we're going to get God in our hands and get His control by praying. See? After all, we're going to have a picnic on Wednesday, so let's pray to God that will give us fair weather so that we can have that picnic. And Farmer Joe over here is praying that we'll have some rain for his crops. Of course, he's not doing that now. He's got a lot of rain. <laughs> but the point of the matter is that people think they can manipulate God. And he permits the problems to come into our lives. And you and I can't manipulate him. He is in control. But there's another way we all, we think that we have things under control. If we can just make enough money. Now, by the way, nobody really believes that. Do you know that? Everybody will deny the fact that money is the answer to all things. They, will not con they would not argue with the preacher as he says there in verse 10. Look at it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. There is no statement to which men will give more lip service than to this. Ask them. But the majority of the people, though they do, though they will say that the preacher is right when he says that, that if you love money, you're not going to be satisfied. Nevertheless, in spite of saying it, what's the major goal of our lives? It is well said that the making of money is the goal of every young man's life and the God of every older man. And the terrible thing is that that generalization is almost true, no matter where you find it. Now, let's not get our heads way up in the clouds here and say that money really doesn't matter if you really believe that, see me afterwards and give me your money, will you? <laughs> money is a comfortable thing to have. Some com comedian said, when things are hard, I'd rather have money than nothing. Money comes in mighty handy when one is sick, or when one is hungry, or when one is in real need. The ancient church, the church of the Middle Ages, made a serious mistake when they made a broad application 
of the words of our Lord to the young ruler. You remember this rich young ruler came to Christ. And he asked for the ways of eternal life, and Jesus asked him concerning the law. And then in order to point out to that young man his real spiritual need, the thing that was really keeping him from God, Jesus told that young man in a very terse way, he said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the early church took that and applied it to everybody. And they said that the only way that you can follow God on this earth is to give up money and to give up wealth and to become, take the vow of poverty and follow him. And they divided the country into those who lived in the village and those who lived in the monastery. And in the monastery, the saints lived. And in the village, the sinners lived. But everybody caught on real quickly that there were many great, saints in the village and many monstrous sinners in the monastery. That whole doctrine has so permeated people's thinking that, they, that they've taken on fanciful ideas, unrealistic ideas relative to money. There's another view that is widespread. Most cultures believe that money is the proof of God's blessing. Now you can write that right across the door of capitalism. You can write it right across the door of communism. You can write it right across the door of almost all the isms. See? Because it's a thing that men believe. I remember one day in an African village, I was walking through it and I noticed two or three of our pastors sitting with two Arab traders. And they did not look too comfortable. A little bit later, they came and they sat with me. And I mentioned to them, I said, what was the discussion between you and those uh, Arabs over there? And one of them looked up at me and he said, you know, they were telling me that their God, Allah, is greater than Jesus Christ. And then one of the, the other ones spoke up and he said, they proved this by pointing out that Allah had given them more money than Jesus had given to us. And they challenged us, they said, just lay out your money here before us and we'll lay out our money before us and we'll show you which God blesses the most. This is an old philosophical concept that is widespread, that if God is smiling on you, he gives you money or the things that money can buy. The real truth that the preacher is trying to get across here, that while life is easier when one has money. The elusive surprise is this, that money never really meets the needs of our lives. Money can pay the doctor. 
Money can buy the medicine. But money can never give one the health we're looking for. Money buys the toys, the children's toys or the adult toys. You know, those on the list that you're saving for right now. Money buys the toys, but money does not give to one the necessary disposition to enjoy and to employ the toys for one's benefit. Money pays for that beautiful vacation, but money cannot give us the good weather we need to enjoy that vacation. Friendships, peace, joy, rest, even security, and the thousands of other essentials for real living cannot be secured with all the money in the world. I remember I had been hunting in Africa, and I'd come in about 3 o'clock in the afternoon from having walked about uh, almost 30 miles, and my water was gone, and my lips were parched, and I was so thirsty. And I came into this village, and I asked if there was anything there that I could drink. There was water there, but I dared not touch it because that water had microbes in it that would, would literally destroy my body. It had killed literally thousands of the children in that village already. And those that had survived had survived simply because they developed a resistance to the microbes that were in that water. But my body could not tolerate that. I did not dare drink that water. And I asked if there was anything else. Did anybody have any canned milk or anything? Some liquid of some kind. I actually had on my person enough money to have bought the whole village. It was a very primitive African village. But my money could not even get me one drop of that which was fit for me to drink. And it is so true of the essential things in life, dear friends. The promise that money makes is more than money can deliver. And then he says something very important and very interesting there in verse 11. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners? Look at it. Except to look on. Our American culture can be characterized by the simple fact that we uh, buy $10,000 automobiles to house them in garages that most of the people in the world would be very glad to have as a home to live in. But we do not put these $10,000 cars into our garages because our garages 
are filled with stuff which we have purchased and have no room for in our house. So we keep them in the garage and the car sits outside. I was in a home and the man showed me a beautiful carved object. It was beautiful. I held it in my home and my hand and, and he said to me how much it cost him. And I gasped because it was more, it cost him more money than the Brethren Church has available for either home missions or foreign missions in any single year. I looked at it, I admired it, I handed it back, he caressed it, and what do you think he did with it? He put it in a safe. He couldn't even keep it out and look at it. And that's what the Koheleth is telling us here. We use money, and we buy this, and we buy that, and we buy the other thing. And we go out and see some new thing and we buy it and we put it in the house and we take the thing we've been looking at in the house and put that in the garage and what can we do with this thing? But to look at it, we have no other earthly use for it. And we wonder why we are a dissatisfied and desolate people upon the earth. And so he lends us his punchline there and in the next verse. He says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There's one minor thing that I'd like to point out. It's not a minor, it's a very important thing. The word working man is not a bad translation, but it does not say what is really said. It says, the sleep of the man who is doing his task is pleasant. The sleep of the man who is doing his task. Does that ring a bell with you? Remember, that's what the, the Koheleth asked back in chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does a man have in all his tasks that he's doing? You remember that that is the statement if you look back in chapter 3. When he told us, first of all, that God has appointed our times, he also tells us in verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men. And now he is saying to us in the face of money, it's the man who is busy doing the task that God has given to him under the sun. That is the man who sleeps well, not the man who through his work has made lots of money. But the man who is doing the task that he knows God has given him to do, and he's faithful at that task, and he's doing the work that God wants him to do, and he knows he's in the will of God, there is the man who finds the real thing that he's looking for, peace, satisfaction, security. He's doing the will of God who is in control of all things. He is carrying out that task. And that's the very thing that he is emphasizing here. He does not say that the working man sleeps better than the rich man. 
That's not what he's saying at all. But he who labors well at the task which God has given to him, be he rich or be he poor, that man, is a, that man has discovered the real source of joy, the real source of peace that can be found in this life under the sun. Will you turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians? There God led the apostle Paul to write for us this tremendous and precious truth. For in the book of Philippians and in chapter 4, he, he writes this. Will you look at it? He says in verse 12, I'm, let's begin in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. In whatever circumstance I am, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he ends it up in verse 19 by assuring this church. He said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you that's a, the greatest thing in the world is to learn that money has its value, money has its place, but put it in its place and don't let it become the God of your life. Don't let it love, don't love it. Don't think that by means of the money you're going to get satisfaction. Don't think by the means of money you're going to get security. Don't think by means of the money you're going to accomplish the things you want. It's not that at all. It's God through you that is going to do it. And if you put your faith and trust in him, he will supply all of your need. There'll be times when you'll have to tighten your belt and get along with little. There'll be times when you'll be able to enjoy plenty, but you will know how to carry both of them without going overboard either way because God is with you. And this is the man that the Koheleth is talking about. This man who is laboring well at the task which God has given to him, this man, he says, sleeps well, while the man who dresses in his money will soon discover that his sleep is taken from him. Oh, what a tragedy when you take the control of your life out of the hand of God and put it in the hand of your money. What a tragedy. This last week, I was in a nursing home. And a dear lady came down the hall after visiting with her mother, and her mother was walking with her. She had to say, Mother, I must go now. And that mother looked at her, and you could see that she thought about as much about that, that, that nursing home as I did. I could well understand the feeling of that mother as she would like to have gotten out of there. But no longer could she function out of there not even with the help of her daughter. And as that daughter turned to go out of the way, the mother said, all you want is my money. And that showed me something about that mother. She thought that she had it made. She thought that she had her daughter's affection. She thought that she had her, 
family intact because she had money that would meet the needs. But money, money fails. It's an illusion. It does not supply. We all know it, don't we? But we keep right on, right on, even though we know it, we keep right on building our thing. He goes on to point out, however, the second point that he wants us to see, and that is that money, money cannot be kept. If you look there, please, in chapter 5 and in verse 13, he said, this is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there is nothing to support him. Oh, yes. Money is sometimes lost through bad investments. This is sometimes because of our foolishness and our greed that involves us in bad investments which destroy us. Sometimes that takes place over things that you and I have no control over. It looked like a sound investment, and we go ahead and take that investment. When the, uh, things that we can't control or can't touch, we have nothing to say about. Destroy the investment and its loss. And the sad thing here is that you notice that this man, having saved his money and then having lost it, had no means of caring for his son because he based his interpersonal relationship with his son upon his money. And that was the sad thing of the case of that woman in that home. She had based her relationships with her family on her money. And they were not satisfying her need whatsoever in spite of her money. And that's the thing that God wants us to see, dear ones. Money can be lost. Don't base anything on money. And then he says something else. He says that money can, must be left. Have you noticed that? I don't care how much you have. Someday you're going to have to leave it. But what does he say in the next verse? As he had come naked from his mother's womb, verse 15, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he has carried in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage of him who toils for the wind? You've all heard the story of the two men sitting, waiting for a funeral to begin. And one leaned over and whispered to the other and said, how much did he really leave? And his friend said, well, I do not know exactly. It's, it's well over several million, but I do not know. And a man sitting directly in front of them leaned back and whispered, he left it all. And that's the simple bottom line of what you do with your bank account 
when you die, you leave it all. There's only one place you can take it. Jesus told you about that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. And here you have some real instructions as to what to do with money. Do not throw money away. It's very valuable. It has a real value, but here's the value of it. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's Matthew 6, verse 19. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you do with your money? Bank it in the bank of heaven. You say to me, that's an interesting way. I know how to get to the Bank of America. I know how to get to home savings. But how, short of dying, do I get to heaven to bank my money? Will you look with me in the book of Luke? And in chapter 16, Luke, chapter 16, and will you look at verse 9 in the book of Luke? Luke 16, verse 9. I say to you, Jesus again, he's telling us now how to bank in heaven. I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of, of the mammon of unrighteousness. When it fails, they, the friends you've made through your money, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I remember one time in a pastor that I had, there was a doctor, and he was uh, wondering what to do with his investment. And he came to me and he sat down and he talked with me a little bit about it. And I told him, I said, there's one thing to do with your investment. What's that? I said, invest it in people for God. Invest it in winning people for God. Invest it in making friends for the kingdom of God. And then when you die and your bank's accounts are left here, you will meet those people in glory. He has a beautiful home. Into that home, he brings literally scores of people month after month. They sit down and he gives them beautiful meals to eat. And he tells them about Jesus. And at his table, literally scores have been won to Christ. He supports missionaries in various parts of the world. He is pouring his money into the bank of heaven. Livingston was home, and while he was home, he was describing his voyages and trips, and a little man came up to him, and he said, you have a lot of work to do. I'd like to help you. 
He said, I'm going to supply so much money every year for you. And I want you to use that money in a very specific way. I want you to hire a body servant who will go with you and take care of your physical needs. He did just that. He hired that body servant with that man's money. On one of his trips, Livingston rounded the pathway and came face to face with a lion. A lioness, by the way, with two cubs, which is the most dangerous situation a man can stumble into. That body servant of his, with the savvy of understanding the jungle and what to do, moved quickly in front of Livingston, did what was necessary to drive the lion away, and Livingston went on his way. He wrote that night to the man and he said, I came face to face what looked to me like death today. But that servant which you supplied delivered me. Whatever God does through me from this day on, I owe to the dollars you gave me. You see, dear ones, that's how to bank in heaven. That's how to bank in heaven. That's what Jesus was telling us. And then he gives us one more thing in this, last, in this chapter about money. He tells us there in verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. The man who makes money his love, the man who makes money his God, this is the attitude, this is the way, this is the picture of that man. That one of the richest men in all the world was Howard Hughes, and you could write that statement right straight across the epitaph of Howard Hughes's life. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger, because that's what happens when men make money their gold. And then the Koheleth goes on to make his conclusion, his conclusion of what he has been trying to tell them. And he tells us a very interesting thing. Look at it in verses 18 through 20. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And the final caution is, he cautions how you treat this life, this gift of life which God has given to you. And he notice he centers in on that same thing that he's been talking about from the beginning. God has appointed our times. God has given us our task. Now enjoy your task. Thank God for the task he's giving you. Thank God for the work he's doing. Enjoy that task. Now, with that task, he gives you possessions. Be they many possessions or be they few possessions, that doesn't matter. 
God doesn't count it that way. Whatever the possessions are, this is your reward. Use them. Don't feel guilty about them. Use them. Thank God for them. Eat, drink, and enjoy them. But remember, it is as you are enjoying your task and doing what God wants you to do that he gives you then the privilege of enjoying the possessions that he has given to you. And he ends it up by pointing out in that last verse there, will you look at it? For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I want to tell you, dear friends, it's not the number of years that God gives you to live. It's the quality of life that you accept from God. If God gives you all the years possible to a man, if he gives you the years of Methuselah and you spend them on money or you spend them on these things that he has been talking about and pointing out to us are foolish things to become involved in. If you spend them on these, you are reaching out and grasping and you'll end up with a handful of air, frustrated, completely defeated, not the number of years. It's when you take the years that God has given you and when you spend those years doing what God wants you to do, and you know within your heart that you are doing what God has pleased and planted you upon the earth to accomplish, then God through that brings gladness to your heart. It was David. Remember David? David who there, who had been sinned so grievously against God? And one day he lost his kingdom and all was down the drain because he raised another God between him and his God. And David, oh, as he climbed the mountain and as he with his handful of men fled from Absalom and he reached the Jordan River and the night fell and he was unable to cross the Jordan, and as he sat there on the ground and laid out on the ground for that night, expecting at any moment the, the, the soldiers of Absalom to come crashing through and destroy him and his small band. Yet David had so repented in his heart, he cried out in Psalm 4. He says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. As he laid there on that ground, expecting any moment perhaps to be destroyed, knowing that it was because of his own foolishness the whole thing came, but having repented and having turned his heart back to God, he went on to say, many are saying, verse 6, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. They're saying back there in Jerusalem, who's going to help David? Who can help David now? Absalom is in complete control. Who can help David? And he says, Lord, lift up the light of your help for me. My wealth can't do it. My friends can't do it. You, God, can do it. And then he adds this, and I think it's beautiful. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and their wine abound. 
in peace I will lay, I will both lie down and sleep. For thou, O Lord, dost make me to dwell in safety. He had sinned, but he had repented. And he came back and he was ready to do whatever task God would put in his hands. And there he was, lying, expecting to meet death, but going to sleep because God, had put gladness in his heart and given him that peace that passeth understanding. Not from money, not from his power as the king, not from the greatness of his army, but because he was in the center of doing what God wanted him to do. And God would put gladness in his heart. Heavenly Father, help us to learn this truth. There's many a dear mother out there. And their hearts are heavy for their children. But Lord, you can put gladness in those hearts as those mothers apply this truth to their own hearts and to their own lives. And oh God, we ask you in Jesus' name, you will do your work in each of our hearts, sending us out of here not with the wrong priority, not with a false priority, but a real dedication to being the people you want us to be and doing the task you've given us to do, knowing that you then will put gladness in our hearts. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.